0: listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host Sutta Singh. Each week we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, Equitable, Compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you.
1: My guests on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week are Parijat Kosh, Team Coordinator, Research and Advocacy at Pradhan, and the Bendu Chaudhary, Integrator, Research and Advocacy team at Pradhan. Good morning, the and good morning, Parijat, for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast Dibindu, thank you very much for coming back here today because we've already run one session on the Adivasi livelihoods report when Pradhan was planning to launch the report. So in a way, this is a follow up after the report has been launched. So, first of all, congratulations on the first Adivasi livelihoods report. What were you hoping to achieve when you started out on pulling together this report? Debendu, I'd like to start with you.
2: Okay, thank you, Sudha. So, see, Pradhan has been working in this Central Indian belt for last almost four decades, 40 years. And our intervention to impact the livelihoods of Adivasis has been helpful to some extent, I would say. And this has been largely due to the development of many livelihood prototypes, such as sasar prototypes, small hotel agriculture, small enterprises like broiler, poultry farming, mushroom, all these things. Now, all these models were developed by taking into account the distinctive features of the region and the Adivasi households. But despite efforts of Pradhan, and other uh, similar well-meaning agencies and government, by and large, Adivasis in this region, the Central Indian belt, have remained deprived. So this is the reason why Pradhan thought to come up with a periodic status report of Adivasi livelihood, so that organizations, including government, remain periodically informed about the status of Adivasi livelihoods. That's the purpose that I would say, yeah.
1: Thank you. You've mentioned some of the reasons about why you were trying to do this. It was important to capture the data and get insights because the development impact is huge, considering that they make up 8.6% of the Indian population. How important and how critical was it that you get real insights? Is there an absence of data at this point in time? Parijat, maybe you can start this one? Let me try it if we consider the whole of india the population of
3: st is 8.6% as you mentioned however if we look at the states where they live such as jharkhand odisha mp chhattisgarh states of northeast the share of the population is quite large and they mostly live in, in the areas which are rich in natural resources such as forest coal and minerals and now this is a unique situation Historically, Adivas is uh, displaced from time to time for various reasons. On the one hand, government needs these natural resource-rich areas for big development projects, such as dams, mines, etc. On the other hand, government also worked out various acts and provisions to protect their rights. They are considered to be the most marginalized section of the society, as Dibandu also mentioned. Therefore, it becomes important to understand the real status of their life and livelihood. And as of now, there is no systematic data kept on this. There are various interventions from government. Many CSOs are working in these areas, but there is no systematic data to track the impact. So we as fellow citizens also, we do not know much about them. So having a clear idea about the status and the reasons probably will help in coming up with better solutions. That's why it is extremely important that we come up with such status reports time to time.
1: Dibendu, you have any additional
2: thoughts on this? I can add two, three lines here. See, so there are many kinds of ideas about uh, Adivasis. One set of people talk about their rich worldview and some other talk about their deprivation and at the same time, uh, there is a larger section of Indian citizens that Parijat was talking about who do not have any idea about adivasis. So that's why a public report was needed to let the citizen of this country know about the situation of adivasis, uh, which constitutes a significant portion of our population. 8.6% in Indian population is huge. So this is, apart from the fact that the policymakers, CSOs and academia, they will also be benefited from this data.
1: Yeah, that makes so much sense. And Devendu, you were talking about the worldview. How relevant is their worldview in today's context, considering COVID, climate change, global warming, things that are like shaking up the world today?
2: Yeah, I can talk about the climate change. See, the climate change is undoubtedly the result of human activities. Unlike you know about the paleocene, Eocene thermal maximum, which took place around 56 million years ago when global temperature rose up to 5 degrees centigrade. But CO2 emission at that time was comprising of carbon-13 isotope, which come from the volcanic activities, whereas burning fossil fuel releases carbon dioxide with carbon-12 isotope which is the main component of the current CO2 causing global warming. So that's how there is no doubt that global warming today is due to human activities. There is absolutely no doubt. Now, there are two main ways to fight this crisis. The first is changing our lifestyle so that we need less exploitation of nature and emit fewer greenhouse gases. The Adivasi worldview of non-accumulation of wealth becomes important here. The second way I would say is the carbon sequestration, which is much talked about nowadays. Here also the indigenous people's practice becomes very important. One of the main mechanism of carbon sequestration is increasing the forest cover. Now worldwide, if you look at data, it indicates that deforestation rates are two to three times lower in lands held by indigenous peoples. This is world over. Even in India, this can be observed. You can see that forests are intact in tribal region and all. So when it comes to conserving nature and biodiversity, Adivasi communities can teach the world, teach us how to do that.
3: Parijat, Let me also talk about their basic values, which we can learn uh, in today's world. The Adivasis believe in a harmonic and non-extractive symbiotic relationship with nature, which Divendu mentioned, and these actually reflected through their language, dance, song, painting, and all other art forms. Their religious rituals are also connected to nature, and they celebrate together. Human values like mutual support, collaboration, and cooperation are an integral part of the tribal society. So in today's Society where it is all about individual prosperity and we compete with each other, these sets of values can actually make the world a far better place to live in. They use local seeds, locally available material for crop production, which helps in rejuvenation of the local soil. Their agriculture is also community-based. It used to be, it is changing, but it used to be like that. So, Dibend also mentioned that their relationship is not extractive. In mainstream idea of development, we extract things from nature for our own good. But their relationship is more mutual and they actually try to take things which actually they need not more than that. And they also help in rejuvenating the uh, nature the way they use it. So these uh, sets of values and way of life probably needed to keep this planet suitable for human species for
1: a longer time. I think there are some really good points in there. I'll move to the question around their identity. Most of the discourse around Indigenous people or Adivasis or STs or tribes are by the majority. Uh, the majority are the people in power. Right, And it is only in the past couple of decades that the voices of Adivasis are becoming more, you know, it hasn't been mainstream for use of a better word, but you're hearing more of it and likely they are a bit more vocal and they are a bit more visible. So what is the question around the identity that they have? And when you talk about tribals, ST, Adivasi are used interchangeably for this group of people. What do that group of people really think about it, the Bendu?
2: Yeah, so you were right. The term tribe, Scheduled Tribe, Adivasi have been used interchangeably to refer to these social groups that were not part of the caste system at least originally. And also, it is the fact that the British colonizers' experience of Africa and America made them think about these groups as kinship-based groups which have primitive traits and which are in a stage of evolution. So that's the history. Now, most of these so-called tribes were dependent on both agriculture and forest, historically. There are other groups also which have been mostly hunting and gathering, but by and large, they were dependent on agriculture and forest. Now, post-independence, they have been displaced, dispossessed for the sake of building large dams, exploitation of mineral reserves and establishment of wildlife sanctuaries in response to these this displacement and dispossessions, tribes started claiming that they were the original inhabitants which is adivasi of the region now this adivasi identity contains two different political ideas the first one is that the adivasis are original inhabitants of the place where they are living now And they have a historical right to their homeland. The second form of Adivasi political identity is based on the idea that tribal culture is superior because it is more egalitarian and ecologically sustainable as compared to modernity or capitalism or industrial model, all those things. So during this study of SAL, we came across both these ideas. A set of people said, that this is our original homeland, and we cannot be deceased from here. And there are a set of people who were proud of their culture, their worldview, which talks about equality, which talks about togetherness, being with nature. And they were proud of that. So both of these identity-based ideas we came across.
3: Parijat? Yeah, where we uh, conducted the study of SAAR, I think most of them would like to call them as Adivasis because this is the identity under which they were all mobilized and they relate to this identity. Tribes from other regions, for example, Optist and other areas, they may not relate to this term of Adivasis. They may be uh, more related to the term tribe. But the people who are residing in the Central Indian Plateau, the way we understood during the study, that they mostly would like to associate it with the term Adidas, more than ST or Rival. ST they use for the official purpose, of course, because that's the government term.
1: So what about the report? What were the key findings of the report? And were there any trends that you noticed in the report? Who would like to go first? Okay, let me
3: start and add. But I understand that the overall report shows that the status of the overseas, uh, in livelihood, income, and other areas, whatever uh, data we collected and analyzed, the situation is worse than the national average. The average per capita income is around 14,780 in Jharkhand, and we precise 13,034 in Odisha. Although farming is reported by more than 90% of the families in both the states, as the major source of livelihood. But in case of Jharkhand, this is the highest contributor to the total household income, which is almost 42% and followed by agriculture. In Orissa, agriculture is the first, but uh, second highest is the wage. So you can see this contrast, that whether more than 90% of the families do agriculture, but the contribution or income is not that high from the agriculture, rather wage is more in that case. And though in these two states living in forestry areas, the income from the forest does not contribute very significantly to the total income. They are dependent in forest in many ways, but if you calculate in monetary term as income from forest, that is not significant, which is significant the way we thought it could be. So that become a little counterintuitive for us also. The situation of functional literacy is really very poor. Only 45% male household heads and 63% female household heads could not read and write in Jharkhand. And the number is even higher in case of ORISA. 55% male and 75% female household heads could not at all read and write. The status of infrastructure, including road connectivity and other connectivity, is poorer in the other areas. That's what the report is saying. So these are some of the major findings that I would like
1: Dibendu to add. Dibendu, any major yeah. trends, any big
2: trends? Of course, a lot uh, of yeah, yeah. yeah. Although, uh, See, this is one-time report, so it's basically very difficult to say trends only from yeah. this report. But if you can compare this report with earlier reports where similar data is there, it shows that Adivasi's landholding is decreasing. So this is one thing I can tell you definitely. Other things we have to see. But just to add to Parijat, I would say that this report presents a contradictory picture, which is probably a feature of this report. And this contradiction is about rich Adivasi and poor Adivasi. Rich Adivasi in terms of their worldview and cultural practices, but poor Adivasi in terms of the deprivation that I talked about. This report does not say any reasons for deprivation, since at points which are mostly external to Adivasis. So this report talks about displacement and dispossession that we discussed already since independence and probably prior to that also but it also talks about reach of development services and facilities in terms of the existence of all weather roads telephones educational institutions health infrastructure all these things and which are poorer in adivasi villages compared to non adivasi villages in the same geography i can't remember exactly now but for instance the mobile connectivity was found available around 70% adivasi villages as compared to approximately 90% of the non-Adivasi villages in both the states, something like that.
1: How important was collaboration with uh, Adivasi activists, academics, campaigners, politicians? I think I attended one session where there were a couple of activists and academics from the Adivasi community. How important was it not to just do it in isolation and do it on your own? Bindu
2: See, there was a group who actually helped us during the design of the study. So this group also comprised of uh, academicians, the activists, the social workers, many kind of people. The most important input that we received from them was that the Adivasi livelihoods are not only about livelihood outcomes, such as income or food security or dietary diversity. If you want to understand Adivasi livelihoods, it is important to understand the cultural ethos that shapes their livelihoods, their relationship with nature, and their relationship among themselves. So that is the main contribution, I think. Otherwise, we are only going with probably the outcome-related things, and it would have been just another report with some poverty indicators. So that made it very, very different. The input made it very different. Adivasi context and issues were captured because of that input.
1: Parichat, do you have any additional points to add to this?
3: Yes. I mean, in the larger society and development forums, those who talk about adivasis and their issues are mostly non-adivasis. Those who formulate policy in the government also, they're mostly non-adivasis. Therefore, we miss out to understand things that Dibendu explained. I mean... This livelihood is not only about outcome, it's also about this cultural. Collaborating with these Adivasi activists, academicians, campaigners, politicians, that also helped us to understand that there are diversities among the Adivasi also. We call them Adivasi and put them in one bracket, that probably is not the uh, right representation of the diversity they have within themselves. So, this collaboration helped to develop this understanding. There are common things and binding factors uh, as the Adivasi community as well as there are huge diversities also among the Adivasi. And I hope this does not become one-time collaboration and we continue to work together to come up with ways for the Adivasi to self-determine their development agenda rather than others speaking on behalf of them.
1: Yeah, that is such an important aspect, self-determination. What has been the response to the report from stakeholders?
3: So far, it has been received well. Most of them said, those who went to the report or attended session, then said that this kind of status report came up with very important insights and uh, that it will be helpful in deciding their uh, own future course of action. They also came up with suggestions for next reports, how that can be more helpful, what more we can include, and overall, I sense that there is an increasing interest and acceptance among the stakeholders. This is the first status report, so therefore, we probably need to continue to work with the stakeholders to disseminate the findings for the report and findings for the report to be more relevant for advocating the desired change we are talking about. So, I would say overall, there is an increasing interest. It is received well so far, but. More work needs to be done so that all the stakeholders actually referring to this report when they're talking about or thinking about
2: their work. Yeah, actually, we received many messages from CSOs and donor agencies. They were thanking us for making this report available in the public domain specifically. Some agencies said that they would leverage it with their clients to drive the focus towards Adivasi population. Some of them have also appreciated that the Adivasi community voices have been kept at the center of this report.
1: So would you say that the broader community, the broader Adivasi community, once the report was launched, also, you know, you got good feedback and there was some resonance
2: on what you were saying? Yeah, I would say that. I would say that. Yes. So yeah, we conducted webinars where Adivasi scholars were present So. They appreciated the presence of this kind of a report and they said that uh, this kind of reports were needed and not uh, only like one-time reports. This has to be a periodic report so that one can see if there is any change in the situation. So that was appreciated quite a lot.
1: How do you expect that the data will be used by the stakeholders? And do you think that they will use? I mean, that is the ultimate ambition, right? That those who are determining the policy should look at the data, should speak to Adivasis or, you know, get a sense of how to go about it from at least the starting point insights can be got from the report. So how do you think that stakeholders will receive it? You've mentioned some stakeholder responses, positive stakeholder responses on getting donors to commit funds for working with Adivasis. But what about those who are designing the policy at the central level, at the state level? I think those are the biggest influences and those are the biggest stakeholders who can influence change,
2: right? So I think the data will be mostly used to track the overall impact of all the efforts made by various agencies (laughs) to improve the situation of Adivasis that we already talked about. Additionally, I would say we will identify areas where deeper study is needed to understand the reason of marginalization. This report doesn't talk much about the reasons. It hints at some of the possible reasons, but it does not directly talk about those. We decided that probably some deeper study would be required to understand the deeper reasons, correlate findings statistically, and also establish causality and we are hoping that many academic institutions can do this because this is a public report anyone can use the data of this report so the academic institutions may do this on their own or we can collaborate with them deeper studies on areas to understand the reasons specifically for the reasons for the deprivation
3: Yeah, I think the findings will also help us reflect and incorporate changes in uh, stance and engagement. For example, agriculture continues to be one of the major sources of income. However, in these two states, Chharkhand and Odisha, wages has become one of the large contributors uh, in the income. We have not focused on the migration so far. I'm talking about Pradhan. So we probably now need to think, what do we... uh, do uh, for that in case of distress migration especially how can we create more livelihood opportunities within the local area how their knowledge can be incorporated when any livelihood project is designed so that not only the way outsiders think about impact that uh, only the livelihood outcomes are the impact but how their values cultural ethos uh, are part of these processes and That's why the impact indicators are also, they incorporate a way of looking at development. Similarly, for the stakeholders who are in the area of education, the situation of functional literacy is really bad. So probably they need to, the way Dipendu was saying that probably they need to go deeper now into the reasons to find the reasons if they want to change the situation. Uh, the malnutrition among the Adhireshki children, those who work in the health sector, probably they may want to go deeper into the reason so that their situation is uh, improved. So there are a lot more such examples where actually the stakeholders, including Pradhan, uh, we can go deeper to understand the situation and the status and change our way of engagement to better the situation.
1: Yeah, I think between Debendu and you, you've answered some part of my next question, which was, you know, if as a country we expect to progress the agenda on indigenous people and include them in the developmental journey, does the model of engagement need to change? And you have given some examples on how that engagement can happen in order to get better results or to change their lives for the better in a way that aligns with their cultural ethos and what they believe in. But do you have any other additions, Dibendu, on the model of engagement with Adivasi is needing change?
2: Yeah, I think we would be really happy if agencies start rethinking their approaches and engagement with Adivasi community. And start giving more space to the expression of the adivasi worldview which is not there right now right now mostly the programs and projects are imposed on adivasis and uh, there is no space where exchange of ideas exchange of worldviews can take place i think if changes in approach takes place in that direction that would be very very helpful and that we are looking for
3: and uh, the priorities are to be decided by the Adivasis, not uh, others
1: speaking on behalf of them. Okay. Are there any examples of good practice? Is someone really doing this well at all? The numbers
3: are less as far as my knowledge is concerned. There are a few examples though. Mendelika is one of the villages in Maharashtra, which actually demonstrated how villagers together can decide their development agenda and pursue that. People talk about good practices. Menda comes to my mind immediately. And in Pradhan also, we are trying to uh, understand and work towards this. Sporadically, we have collaborated with APU as in university of the action research is called adaptive skill through action research as we call it as call it. to come up with a process where villagers determine their development agenda. Villagers talk about their development. The priorities are deciding based on uh, the prosperity both individual prosperity as well as collective well-being in uh, taking into account both of those. So a lot of insights uh, are coming from this engagement also.
1: We have the last question what is next
2: I think the next is that we are thinking about doing the same exercise in other states. So this time we have selected Madhya Pradesh and Chhattisgarh. And we have decided not to repeat the same exercise just this year because of the fact that probably situations may not change so quickly. So we may end up collecting data which would give almost a similar picture. So this year, we'll be doing it in two more states, Madhya Pradesh and Chhattisgarh. Next year, probably another two states. And uh, in the third year, we'll again come back to Jharkhand and Odisha. And then probably uh, we we can see if there has been any change. So that's the plan. And we have started the process of designing the survey and data is getting collected and all the things. And probably in the next year, we'll be coming up with the report on time. That's what I can say.
1: Okay. Parijat, any last thoughts? No, I think what Dipendu
3: says is correct. And I'm hoping that we have this uh, continuous repository of data where uh, actually the change can be tracked. And uh, maybe 20, 25 years down the line, this really becomes a rich data set which everybody can use and can see the change if there any. So I really hope that we are able to Continue with coming up with such reports for a very long period of
1: time. Brilliant. Thank you. Any last thoughts, both of you, Dibendu, Parijan?
2: Uh, I would say this recently enacted ESA and FRA are very important acts that provide Adivasis with the right to self-governance and access to forest. So, these, if implemented in later and spirit, can change the situation of Adivasis in this region, in the central Indian West. Many agencies and individuals are working for that. Not that the desert situation has been achieved, barring one two examples that the Parijat was talking about, and in some cases, the fact is that people are still hopeful that PESA and EFRA can change the situation of Adivasi. So, we are looking forward to those kinds of enactments and coming up with the rules for making these practically happen in states. And probably if our reports can help policymakers to expedite that process
1: yeah the insights can support policymakers so they design interventions that are more suitable and suited for actual change so thank you very much Parijat and thank you very much Dibendu for this uh, conversation this is a very very important topic and I think the more we talk about it and the more we get more people to hear about this and engage on this issue about adivasis and livelihoods and what they want in India that they are a very important part of the country, but we treat them as, you know, people on the margins and that needs to change. So I hope that with these conversations, we are able to do that sooner rather than later. Thank you very much, Parijat. Thank you, thank, the
2: you
3: thank you so much. Thank you, Sudha, for uh, providing this platform because as you were saying, not many citizens, fellow citizens know about this and not interested about this probably because there is no uh, talk around the actual issues of Adivasi when we call Adivasi or tribal we only uh, speak about their songs and dance forms art forms but thank you for providing us this opportunity to talk about other issues as well so that as you were saying more and more people will know more about them and probably the conversation will help us to be in a better place thank you so much
0: thank you thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms. iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.